Uh, would you turn with me to Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45? And once you are there, would you stand up as we give reverence to the reading of God's Word? This is the Word of God, Matthew 27, 45. We read the first part of the crucifixion last week. Well, we read the second part right now. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lemasabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Thanks for an incredible passage. Passage that feels like we're treading on holy ground. And we ask this day, Jesus, that you would give us wisdom on your work on that day 2,000 years ago, that it would be more than just something we wear around our neck or speak of, it would be something that we live. So would you give us wisdom? And we pray this in your name, amen. You can have a seat. There have been some very historic discoveries that have happened. Uh, the transistor in 1947, it changed our world. Do you like your iPhone? It's a transistor. It's just a bunch of them. Do you like the fact that your car can talk to you? That's a transistor. Do you like the fact that you can hear my voice right now? Maybe that one's debatable. That's a transistor. It has transformed our world. That's a really cool discovery. There's been some cool inventions. The auto-flush public toilet. Who likes those? Right? You don't have to touch that retainer of everything that's unholy, right? Avian bird flu and, and whatever else is on there. You don't have to touch it anymore. Like that person should get a Nobel Prize because that's brilliant. Thank you. All right? That's a really good discovery. How about caller ID? You don't have to take the call from AIM Debt Reduction Services or you can ignore me, but God knows. So good discoveries. How about the in-car DVD player. Is that, if you're a parent, that's pretty brilliant. I lived in a very different world. We didn't have that kind of stuff. 
The only inter- entertainment we had growing up was to fight and bicker, which we did very well. He's on my side. That line right there, you cannot cross that line, right? When I'm driving my camper, it's the only one that we have a DVD player in. I know the moment the, the movie ends. You know why? Let's get ready to rumble. I'm like, ah, what just happened? Put on another movie. <laughs> right? Parents love, that's a really, really good invention. How about penicillin? It's considered to be the discovery of the millennia. Of a thousand years, that's the biggest discovery. They're estimating conservatively 200 million lives have been saved because of penicillin. Like 200 million, 200, 100 years ago, you could die from getting a splinter. It just gets infected and you die. You get something that's bad. It's unbelievable. And the guy who's credited with discovering it is a man named Alexander Fleming. He discovered it in 1928. But guess what? He was not the first guy to discover penicillin. It was discovered 50 years before by a guy named John Tyndall. And then it was discovered three years before Fleming by a guy named Dr. Gatia. So why do we credit Alexander Fleming? Why does he get the Nobel Prize? Why him? He says this, the only difference between me and those other two men is I pursued my subject. They discovered it, did nothing with it, so it did not change the world. I think that's the same thing with what we're talking about today. You can listen to these words like John Tyndale or Dr. Gatia, but if you don't do something with them and if you don't apply them, it's not gonna transform your life. So we're talking about, we started it last week, we'll finish today. What did the cross do for us? We're discovering the magnitude of what the cross actually accomplished. And I have, I think, 12 different things that I say, this is what the cross did. There's probably even more. We did two last week. The two, propitiation, no more wrath, and redemption, that we've been set free, that we've been redeemed out of a really dark place into light. I'm gonna try to do four today. That's my goal. But that's just about half of them. I'll give you the rest of them my hope is that you'll look into these because I think everything that we under, it, the cross is like a multifaceted jewel. The more you understand it, the more you do something with what you know, the more it actually saves you and transforms the way you live, okay? So number one is this term, it's called expiation. And I think I have the verse for it right here. Above me. Usually that thing goes up. Expiation. Here's, I'll read it for you. It's Acts. I'll read it. Yes. Okay. I'll read it for you. Acts chapter 15. Very important chapter in the Bible. Summing kind of what has happened in the church. And this is what Peter says. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Expiation means this, being cleansed from the effects of sin. Do you know that sin stains you? I do some talking with people and hear their stories and hear where they've been at, and I have never ceased being shocked about the long-term effects that sin can have in a person's life. And I'm not talking about sins that they've done, yeah, that obviously, 
But very often the, the stuff I'm talking about is sins that have been committed against them. Quite frequently when they were young and vulnerable, really hard stuff, being forced into a physical relationship that they did not want, being molested or, or being raped, really, really bad stuff. How, how that stain then defines almost who they are. Their identity is by an event that happened to them out of their control many years before. And then it kind of, it kind of determines the way that they live their life today. It's heartbreaking. Some people, they have a real passiveness to them because of those things. Like I was, I, I just can't control things. This happened to me. I was weak. And in their life, it's kind of lived passively now. Well, well, fatalism. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Breaks my heart. Other people are, well, I feel dirty because this thing was done to me. So now I'm going to start acting dirty. Sometimes it's the party girl, party guy. Right? This happened. And so now I'm just going to blow up and be crazy and do crazy things to try to just push it all away. Sometimes it's the tough guy, tough girl. Some of the toughest men I've known were hurt really bad when they were young. And now their posture, they flex and they posture. What they're saying is, you're not gonna, you're not gonna do it to me again. You will not hurt me again. And under it all is this kind of, it's almost like all of them have this fear and it just consumes them. It's, it, it, it breaks my heart. So this is what I start talking to them about right here. Expiation, expiation. Okay, let me read you an Old Testament text that I think is brilliant. I often share it with people. It's Ezekiel 36, and it is a reference to something new that's coming. We call it the new covenant. But for those reading Ezekiel, they'd be like, wow, that's amazing. Listen to this. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Who cleans people up? It's God speaking, Yahweh. I'm gonna do this. He doesn't say sin there. He does say idols. I'm going to clean you from uncleanness. And I will give you a new heart. The, the heart is the center of what drives life in the Old Testament. This thing that has driven you into passivity, this thing that has driven you into tough party, whatever it is, this, this, I'm going to give you a different way of living life, a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. God says, I'm gonna clean you. That thing that has driven you and hurt you and ruined you, I'm gonna clean you. Well, Matt, I've been a believer now for 10 years. This thing still, still hurts me. What, what, what happened? In the New Testament, it tells us this, that we participate in that cleaning, okay? I'll read one for you. It's 2 Corinthians 7.1. 1. 
It says this. Since we have these promises, what kind of promises? Ezekiel 36 promises. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body. Interesting use of words there. And spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You can go to Revelation 22 as well, verse 14, where it says, these are they that have cleansed themselves and their robes, made, washed their robes. So, so here's the way I see it. Jesus and the cross provides us with the soap, but then we choose to use it and apply it to our lives, okay? And very often what I've seen with expiation is this, it requires people. There is such power when I'm able to look at somebody that has been hurt very bad and be able to say to them, listen, you are clean. Listen, that does not define you anymore. Listen to me. I've had people just start weeping when they realize when God applies that to their heart and they say, that's right. That no longer defines me. It's amazing. Very often it just takes somebody saying that to you. Have you ever had somebody say to you, you are forgiven and you actually felt it go through your body? I felt that before. Like God's spirit takes those words and then just crams it down into your spirit. You go, that's right. So very often it takes community. And so if you've been hurt in those ways, we have for gals, it's this thing called wildflowers. It's to me one of the most amazing ways of expiation being worked out in the church. You should check it out. There's Mondays, there's Titus 2 gals. For men, there's Friday morning Bible studies. For all of us, we're gonna be looking at moving into some community groups because often it takes community for this to work out right. Where we do it together, where we say to one another, hey, here are the promises. You've been cleansed. You've been set free because of Jesus Christ. Cleansed. Expiation happened on the cross. Whatever happened to me, whatever happened to you, Back in whatever, listen, it no longer defines you. You're not defined that by that anymore. You are cleansed because of the cross. Number two, righteousness. Assuming it'll be up there. This is, if you want to just meditate on a passage of scripture, here's one. Verses 17 through 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. Un. Believable. I'll read it for you. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear that? Like there's this comparison of us to God's righteousness. It's one of the most profound scriptures. Like we always kind of run from any comparison to God. But here in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter five, something's gonna happen to you, something has happened to you where you will be made the very righteousness of God. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness, a simple way to think about it is kind of what you think makes you special, okay? You could use the word religion instead. Everyone has their own religion. Everyone has their own. This is what sets me apart. This is what makes me better. And it can be like the truck you drive. You know people like that? Like they're Ford people. Because they drive a Ford, they're better than all the Chevy and all the Dodge people, right? You see, right there. 
There he is. I knew he was here. <laughs> I was just waiting. I baited you. And there's other people, yeah, Ford, fix or repair daily, right? You should, like, that's their righteousness. Like, mm, this is it. We all have things like that. Maybe it's your political persuasion. I'm voting Hillary. I'm voting Trump. I'm voting for Gary. I don't know anything outside of America Johnson, right? I, he, he, I, I, just, I don't even want to go there. Like, it floors me. I'm like, are you kidding? How can you say that on... It's unbelievable. Do you read the paper? Oh, I'm a libertarian. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Green Party. Whatever. I recycle. I homeschool my kids. I live off the grid. I do sustainable gardening practices. I never use weed and feed. Whatever it is. Like, we all have these things that we kind of stand on. I'm all of those things that I drive a Ford. I'm better than all of you. I get up early. I work hard. I have a job. I have a career. I have a name. It's right. That's our righteousness. This is what makes me right. All of us have it. Here's the problem with it. If you were with us on Wednesday, when we went through Matthew chapter 26, we see a guy, his name is Peter, and he has his own righteousness. So Jesus looks at his 11 and says this, hey, tonight, all of you, you're going to run away. All of you are going to flee. All of you. And what does Peter say? Oh, Jesus, come on. Not me. These 10 guys, morons, totally. They will do that, but not I. I will die for you. What's his righteousness? I'm not like those morons. I'm so much better than them. Oh, you know me. I've been hanging out with these 10 for three and a half years. Trust me, they will deny you, but not I. And what happens to Peter? He doesn't die for Jesus. He denies him three times. And then it says he wept bitterly. There will come a point in your life when we base our righteousness on something that it will fail and we will weep bitterly. I've had a mom say to me this, if my kids, if my son in this particular situation, if my son did that, it would ruin me. Guess what she told me right then? My righteousness is being a mother and raising my kids a certain way. <sighs> Dangerous. Dads with peewee football. You ever go to a peewee football game? Don't watch the game, just watch the dads. That's the entertainment. <laughs> right? What, you pull my son? Are you kidding me? He's the best ever. Man, the scouts with the ducks are here. He could probably play for him this year. <laughs> 10 years I've been holding it. <laughs> 10 years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought I died and went to heaven last night. <laughs> Lord, is this heaven? So bad. I'm so bad. There's my righteousness right there. You just got it. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm, I really, it was, I am actually sorry. <laughs> I really am. It's funny, but I am sorry. I mean, Yeah. Misery loves company, though. <laughs> Welcome. Right? We, we, we all have something that will define us. And at some point, there will be failure. And then we're like, oh, oh. It was the fact that I got straight A's and I got a B. Oh, it's because I have a PhD. Well, I met somebody a lot, lot smarter than me. And it ruined 
me. At that point, you get what the Bible says, that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. It crumbled on me. It crumbled on me. Now, Now what? Well, here's the good news. The good news is this. That doesn't define us as believers. We don't work for righteousness. The Bible says this. You actually work from righteousness. You've already, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, been made righteous. And when you understand that, you're a transformed kind of person. So I've been personally kind of in my own devotional reading, reading the book of Acts. And I've been just reading it just like, these guys walked around Jerusalem with this, I call it a humble swagger. They're just like, go ahead. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. That's a swagger. Acts 13, sharing the gospel with this guy named Sergius Paulus, who's the governor. This, this other guy starts coming against the gospel. Paul turns him to him and just says, bro, you're going blind for a while. And he does. Man, you're like, whoa, what happened? They realized I've been made righteous. They walked around the planet like they belonged to the family that ruled it. And it transformed them. Because they got, I don't have to worry about all this other stuff. I've already got the best. I am the righteousness of God. Everything else is small potatoes in comparison. And it transformed them brilliantly. What if we started doing that? John Knox, his most, his most famous statement, does anyone know what it is? Give me Scotland or I die. Humble swagger. Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, the, the lady that was trying to stamp out Protestants, you know, she, she was attempting to, she said this, and I quote, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the armies of Scotland. Guess what? He got Scotland. Scotland was transformed because a guy said, I don't worry about all that. I have no righteousness. I am royalty. Give me Scotland or I die. Second great awakening. These people would leave the churches and they would go stand out in front of brothels and they would pray. And guess what happened? They shut them down. Not by voting, as important as voting is. They prayed and they shut them down. In fact, if you study the second great awakening, here's one of the things that, that people marvel at. The police were put on hiatus in England because they didn't need them anymore. That's unbelievable. Why? Because there was people that understood I'm royalty. I've been made the very righteousness of God. I'm walking around like that now. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's, It's like my son Elijah. He was trying to figure out my job about five years ago. And he started asking these questions. He's like, okay, dad, are you the boss of Edgewater? Like, how do you answer that? I'm like, what do you mean, son? He goes, well, I want to know, do you own the church? Like, why? He goes, because if you do, I'm going to get all my buddies together. I'm going to clear out all the chairs. I want to play soccer in there. (laughs) This is what I told him. I said, son, you own the church. You're royalty. Get all your buddies. You and all your buddies own the church. I don't own the church. You own it. That's the way we're supposed to walk around this world. And Acts is not an easy book, is it? They were beaten, they were pummeled, they were killed, they were stoned. But guess what? It never changed their understanding. I'm royalty. And my dad is king of the universe. That's righteousness. 
And because of the cross of Jesus Christ, that's what we are. That's like penicillin. You gotta, you gotta, don't neglect that observation. It should transform the way you look at every single thing you do. That we have been made righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Number three, justification. Big word. I'll try to make it simple. Titus 3, 7. Probably right up there. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let me give you a little bit of a different twist on justification. And it's from a story of Jesus. If I really have a question on something, I'm finding if I talk or read, talk to Jesus in prayer and read about what Jesus wrote, I find a lot of insight. So that's what I did on justification. I went to this story. It's Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That always, always happens that way, right there. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. What's the temple? What's the big idea of the temple throughout the Bible? That's the place you meet God. That's what it is. So the temple was, if you would, it was the overlap of heaven and earth. It was like this little, if you took two circles and you kind of overlapped them, it's that little crease in the middle. Well, you normally live this kind of life, God's in this kind of life, but you could go to the temple and you could get in this kind of space where God was. So you've got these two different kind of guys, but they both have the same desire. We want to get in God's space, right? That's the temple. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself, how interesting that is, the righteous, contempt of others, don't get close to me. I might catch the sinnies. Like, ooh, no. By himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, or even like this tax collector. Just points him out. <laughs> I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But, verse 13, the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than than the other. There's Jesus talking about this really cool term, justification, okay? So, so the temple is this. In every single one of us, whether I'm a tax collector or, or whether I'm a Pharisee, in all of us is this drive to know God. It's been put in us. We want to be in God's place. We want to be around him. We want to be near him in his presence. But here's the problem with God, and it's a really good problem. God is holy and pure and super good, 
But if you get too close to him, guess what happens? It's dangerous, right? It's really dangerous to get too close to God. So my analogy would be this. It's like the sun. Today, the sun's going to be out. And it's going to be a beautiful day in Southern Oregon. And you go outside and you feel the sun and it's warm and it's great and it's wonderful, right? At 93 million miles. Go 10 miles from the sun, what happens to you? You're done. That's like God. So at a distance, hey, God is good and warm and, and there's, there's this common kind of grace. But, but you get too close to God and just his goodness and his greatness, it just tears you apart. You can't take it. It's like the sun. So that's most of the Old Testament, by the way. It's this, 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 how do we do this? Well, we've got these rituals that make us a little bit better. We have these sacrifices that make a clean spot for just a little while where we can get close to God. But then once that clean spot is gone, look out, he's dangerous again because his goodness and his holiness, it's just too, it's too, too awesome for us, if you would. All right, All right? so th- that's the problem. So you get these two guys, same motivation, very different kind of outcome and how they approach God. But, but then Jesus says, this one guy, this one guy, this humble man, this humble man that knows his need of the cross, he was justified. So, so how is he justified? When you and I realize kind of our place, realize our need for the cross, the Bible says this, this is what happens to us. You and I, Colossians 3.3, 3, our lives are hid in Christ. So, so it's as if you and I become part of Christ, we go into Christ, and so now the, the, the clean spot for us to be able to come into God's presence is the fact that we're with Jesus. Does that make sense? So now we can come to the temple, we can come into his presence. So I'll explain it like this. This is the best analogy I have. I've used it a couple times. It happened nine years ago. My wife, pregnant with my son Elijah, he just turned nine. She was greatly pregnant, like 15 months pregnant. You're just like, you're, she was that pregnant. We had this Saturday where, where we had three weddings to attend that day. So we're going, we go to wedding number one, we get to the wedding. Um, we're there at the wedding and it, we were a little bit late because you just take it slow. You just, you just take it slow with a pregnant lady. So we get there a little bit late. It's outside, it's hot, there are no seats. And as we're kind of walking down the aisle, this guy sees my wife and says, hey, do you want a seat? She goes, oh, thank you, yes. So he gave her a seat. Now I'm standing there, there's no seat for me. The guy's walking away, he looks at me, he goes, would you like a seat too? Well, yeah, sure. He goes off somewhere, finds a seat, brings it over to me. So I sit down, I'm like, yeah, that was cool. So we're sitting there and hot day. And I'm thinking, man, it'd be nice to have a glass of iced tea. This other guy kind of turns around, sees my wife, goes, you look thirsty. Would you like some iced tea? Yes, I would love some iced tea. And as he's leaving, he kind of look, looks at me, do you want some iced tea too? Well, sure, yeah, I want some iced tea too. Yeah, okay, I'll have some. Yeah, I'll have some. So he brings out two iced teas. We're like, hey, that was awesome. So we're the next wedding. We go to the third wedding. The third wedding is kind of out in Williams. It's at a, at a person's house. And we get there late. We're, we're just going for the reception dinner. We get there and um, there's a 200 person long line for the food. And as we're walking in, my wife is like, I am so hungry. Here's what I've learned in five pregnancies. When a pregnant woman is hungry, feed her. <laughs> you, I had fries underneath my hat. Here you go, sweets. There you go. I get, I'll go kill something and cook it right now. It doesn't matter. 
So she's there, I'm like, oh man, a 200 person line, man, what are we going to do? And, and so as we're walking by, one of the chefs walks by, sees my wife and says, boy, you look hungry. Now I'm like, I don't know, she looks full to me, but I mean, okay. Would you like some food? She's like, oh, please, I would love some food. And as he's leaving, he looks at me, you want some food too? I said, oh yeah, I'll, t- I'll have the halibut, I'll have the tri-tip and a chef salad. So I sit down and we're eating while 200 people are still looking at us like, what, really? Yeah, you know it. And right when we finish our food, the owner of the house comes out, walks by and says, hey, do you guys want some dessert? Yes, we want some dessert. Thank you. Now, why did I get all that? Because I was with my wife, right? That's why. Okay, that's justification. We can go boldly into the throne room of our heavenly father, not fearing we're going to be tore apart anymore. Why? Because we just say, I'm with him. I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. My life has been hid in him. And now that enables me to come boldly into God's throne room. And God doesn't see me because my life has been hid in Jesus. What he sees is his son and says, enter in, ask, get help, pray. I'll hear you. I'll fill you with my spirit. That happens. Why? Because we've been justified. We're able to just come into God's presence now. It's amazing, amazing truth. Last one, final one. It's a Luther, Martin Luther, his favorite thing about the cross. He centered it on this. It's called Christus Victor. Who's heard that term before? I've used it a couple times. Here's the text for Christus Victor. Colossians 2, 15. Listen to this. He, that's Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. That word him probably better translated it, speaking of the cross. That's Christus, Victor. So when you read that, you have to ask, well, who are the powers and who are the authorities, right? Who are they? Is it Pontius Pilate? Is it Caiaphas? Is it the soldiers? Who are the rulers and authorities? Let me give you a big picture on this, okay? Jesus, and we read it, on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22, verse one. It's Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you know a little bit about um, rabbis and how they worked in the first century, here's what would happen. When they were talking to their students, what they would do is they would mention the first line of a text and that was it. And it was the job of the student to go like figure out where in the Old Testament that was at because they didn't have Google back then. So you had to actually read the entire Old Testament and figure out where that person's talking about. So Jesus here is referencing the very first line of Psalm 22. What he's saying is, read that. It's really important. Read that. What's happening is really important. Let me read Psalm 22, the first 13 verses for you. And then we'll talk. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why, you're, why have you forsaken me? There it is. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? Oh my God, I cry by day but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Yet you are holy, 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse eight, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he, de- for he delights in him. That verse is quoted by the high priest to Jesus on the cross. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help me. Verse 12, many bulls compass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their, wide, their mouths wide like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. Psalm 13, Psalm 22, one through 14. Jesus on the cross quotes Psalm 22. And if you study it, it's amazing how it describes crucifixion 600 years before it was invented. But there's a little phrase in there that catches everybody. And I read it. It says, many bulls, the bulls of Bashan, they surround me. They're, they're gaping, they're leering at me like a roaring lion. Have you ever looked at a bull and thought, man, that thing is roaring like, gaping at me like a roaring lion? Like, isn't that a weird comparison? You know, it's like a beaver win. I mean, it's just a weird comparison. You don't put those words in. Bull and lion. It's like, kind of like, hmm, what's being said there? All right, here's the big picture. In the Old Testament, there are these things that the Bible authors use. Comparisons. So one of them would be cities. In the Old Testament, you could say it's a tale of two cities. You've got Jerusalem, the city of God where God dwells and his presence is there. And he wants justice and righteousness to come out of that city. He wants it to be a light to all nations of what happens when you serve Yahweh. This is what it looks like, right? That's Jerusalem. What's its contrast in the Bible? Babylon, right? All that's evil, all that's broken, an empire that crushes and is careless. It's Babylon from Genesis 11 to Revelation 18, which is the majority of the Bible, except for about 15 chapters. It's Babylon. Babylon's a bad place. Look out for Babylon, right? The contrast of those. God does the same thing in Psalm 68 with his mountain called the Mount of Sinai and with another mountain called the Mountains of Bashan. Now, just a quick geography lesson for you. Bashan was the northernmost part of Israel, just almost outside of Israel. In Bashan, there was a bad king called Og, who came against, he's a descendant of the Rephaim, which is another bad term, and he comes against God's people, fights them. So Bashan was an area that, that we would say like, it's a bad spot, that's an evil spot. That, that, that Look out for that spot, it, it will get you. Caesarea Philippi, where we looked at Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus gives his proclamation and says, hey, I'm going to build my church at the gates of hell. There was a temple there, a temple to the god Pan, who's the goat god. 
and he was a really, really bad, 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 bad dude and did lots, people did really lots of bad stuff there. So that's in that same area of Bashan. So what's being said when you hear Bashan in the Old Testament is this, bad spot. Like Babylon, here's another bad spot. So you get this little phrase there, the bulls of Bashan. What are they? They're leering at me like a lion. At this point, I think you're getting a crack into the spirit realm of what happened on the cross. It's more than just physical, right? There's a spiritual component to it. Read Ephesians chapter four. It talks about part of that. So the bulls of Bashan are, I believe, demonic and satanic powers. The powers and authority, Colossians 2, 15. That Jesus on the cross triumphs over bad, terrible stuff. They thought we won Friday. We killed him. But then Easter Sunday, Judo theology reverses it. Jesus instead triumphs over them, puts them down. Well, Matt, if evil was defeated 2,000 years ago, why do we see so much evil today? Here's my answer to that. If you know World War II, there was a decisive battle called Normandy. June 6th, 1944. Every historian will tell you that was it. When we won, the Allied forces won on Normandy, the, battle, the war was over. But did the fighting stop? Mm-mm. Had another year, probably the, it was the most brutal year of the war was the next year. Mop up. It was pushing evil back, pushing those forces back, pushing, 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 pushing until you get to Berlin and you take care of it. Okay? Our Normandy was the cross 2,000 years ago. And right now we're in the mop-up. We're pushing back evil. That's our job. Our job is to partner with Jesus in pushing back evil. So we join with Jesus in this push, in this march against evil. So all the power that was against us as a believer, it's gone. All their lies to us. Hey, you lied. You did this. You're a terrible Christian. You had an abortion. You're never going to be loved. You're never going to get married. You're never going to have somebody that actually cares for you because you did this. All those things are lies that we say, "Uh uh-uh. They have no power anymore. The bulls of Bashan, they can roar, but the bite was taken 2,000 years ago. That's Christus, Victor. He is our warrior king. And if I had more time, I would share with you what happened to me on Monday morning. It was unbelievable. I'm driving home from dropping my kids off, and I'm driving, and for some reason, I just felt, I need to stop and talk to this neighbor. I stop and talk to him. He's an older gentleman, great guy, believer. He's walking his dog. I say, hey, man, what's going on? He goes, you would not believe what happened to me last night. This kid came out of this, he's a kid, he's 20. This young man came out of this house and tried to attack me with a, 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 a splitting mall. I'm like, what? That's bizarre. And I know this young man. I thought, that, that's not him. What's going on? While we're talking, eight in the morning, he comes out of the garage with a splitting mall. He's like, I can't walk by there to go home. So I said, buddy, pray for me. I'm going to go over there. So he prays for me. I pull into this driveway. Kids got a splitting mall. I, I get out of my car. I'm not sure how this is going to go, but maybe the best thing ever, I've ever done in my life was this. I tried to talk to him. I couldn't talk. Guess what I did instead? I just started crying. There's like this old saying, you don't hit a guy with glasses. You don't take a splitting mall to a guy who's crying. You just don't. It's like, ugh. So he just dropped it, man. It was like so disarming. The reason why I did, I just saw in him pain. It was like for a moment I was open to like, this, this guy's been hurt really bad. 
hurt really bad. And it just broke my heart. I couldn't talk. I just had to cry. So then we just started having a conversation, three and a half hours of conversation. And he described something that was in him that I'll tell you, it was a demon. And, and long story short, he got delivered, grabbed all of his stuff that he'd been doing, took it outside and burned it. On his own, I didn't ask him to do that. Burned it, set free. Why? Colossians 2.15, we're in mop up. The bulls, they can roar, but they got no bite now. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. This is the cross. Jesus is our warrior king. And part of it is this, I don't have to get even with people anymore, right? He's my warrior king. I can truly do Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome of evil, but I can overcome evil with good now. Why? Because I have a warrior king. He'll take care of that. I can love him and just trust God will take care of those things. Trust my warrior king. That's the cross. This is just half of what I have on the cross. It's brilliant. I haven't talked to you about atonement or ransom or example or reconciliation or revelation. It's like penicillin. If you don't do something with the observation of the cross, it will not transform your life. So here's what I would say. As you go to the table this morning, maybe something in the cross has struck you. Maybe it's redemption. Maybe it's propitiation. Maybe it's expiation. Maybe it's Christus victor. Maybe it's justification. I don't know. Maybe something hits you. Dine on it. Make it a part of you. Assimilate it. Let it be incarnational. Jesus, make this part of the cross part of my life, part of how I walk. And transform me. Help me not to neglect the observation that I've heard this morning. And he'll do that for you. And your life will be changed because you're living in the power of the cross. And so, Father, thank you that we have been set free. Thank you that you are a Christus victor. You've defeated the bulls of Bashan. You de defeated the evil empire. And now we can be set free. And now we can walk as royalty. And now we can live with a humble swagger. We can live as justified, righteous, redeemed, cleansed saints of our Heavenly Father. I pray as we go to the table, we partake of the cup and your broken body. I pray that you would breathe into a strength and power to live a righteous, courageous, confident, existence here. So would you, by the power of your spirit, even this morning, breathe into each of us the work of your cross and set us free. Keep setting us free, Lord. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.